Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslowski. I'm about to bang a verbal gong, and you can decide how you'd like to get it on. This is episode number 89. Hello, fine friend. How are you this wonderful day? Oh, how do I know it's a wonderful day? Well, with apologies to Everclear, who asked me very nicely, by the way, not to tell you that everything is wonderful now, any day can be a wonderful day with the right mindset and the right people in it. There's no notification that tells me that you're listening to this episode right now. So guess what? Here is a pre-smile at you while I'm recording this so you can feel my gratitude for your time and attention. The expiration date on my smile for you? There is none. I also have no expiration date for this special thanks to our show's newest patron on Patreon at the $3 an episode level, no less, Ellen Watkins. Ellen is actually a good friend of mine, and a little does she know. She pledged her support on the same day I received her first children's book in the mail titled Caterpillar and Snail Go on a Big Adventure, written and illustrated with her fine fingers. It was a years-long journey to get it published. Congrats to you. I'll link to the book in the show notes because it has the Grant Zeslowski seal of approval, and that is not an easy one to get. Uh, My Amazon review, Ellen, for Caterpillar and the Snail is written, and as you may have guessed, sweet, sassy, molassie, you make me happy. As always, this episode is brought to you by my voice and Patreon supporters. I don't have sponsors. I just have you. So consider showing your support for me, this show, and our community at valueofsimple.com slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Now, here's an extra dose of love to Alicia, who wrote this recent review for the show on iTunes. She said, Joel's attitude of gratitude is infectious, and he definitely makes it easier to take a simple, happy approach to life after listening. Joel's greatest strength is truly connecting with guests on his show. He has flowing conversations that gently tease the details from one topic while easily leading to the next. He always listens carefully and gives his full attention to the speaker, not waiting to chime in with a witty remark just for the sake of hearing himself speak. I think this is a rare quality in a host, and it's extremely conducive to being inspired by the guests he has on the show. I've been flying through the episodes, and I fear the day there is no more backlog left for me to plow through. Keep on with the interviews, buddy. I love them. End of review. But I'm getting warm over here. Hot diggity, Alicia. I received that with gratitude, and you and what you shared are tremendous. You know, we're 11% of the way to our first big Patreon milestone. Weekly episodes... So maybe we can get there before you plow through the whole SASM archives. Who knows? What I can say with a high level of confidence, though, is that I'll have better show notes for you starting in January 2016, otherwise known as a month from now. I'm actually making great progress on getting ready to move my online home from valueofsimple to joelzeslowski.com and if the technical side of the conversion goes as planned, I will be asking you to feast your eyes on the new source of grooviness soon, especially on mobile devices because uh, (laughs) value of simple is not pretty or functional on a smartphone. Now, let's get to the main part of the show. I already spoke about Ellen Watkins' children's book and my guest for this episode knows his way around kitty literature. That's a theme recently in these episodes. After learning that I had a four-year-old son, Toku McCree from unexecutive.com vividly and persuasively recommended that we read 
We Are in a Book Together, as the author, Mo Willems, is his favorite children's author. This is coming from a guy who was a preschool teacher and spent two plus years in a Zen monastery. So yeah, yeah, I'm listening. It turns out his book recommendations are as good as his general wisdom, which he's not going to take credit for. You'll understand why that is soon. Regardless, this episode is fantastically fascinating as Toku shares his five secrets of super fast mindfulness, why awareness alone is the most powerful catalyst for change, and what his one universal truth is. Get ready to get your mindfulness on and perhaps, just perhaps, get caught in a stream of trickle-down enlightenment. Here we go. Get it on, bang a gong, get it on, baby. However, what you do after banging that gong might change after you hear what my guest for this episode has to say. I'm with Toku McCree, an executive coach who works with some of the world's most influential leaders and shares what he learns on unexecutive.com. He hangs out in Portland, Oregon with his partner, Jane, and that is where he's wildly and refreshingly vulnerable, service-oriented, and, you know, likes to drive his cat a little crazy with some laser pointer action. Welcome to the show, Toku. I'm stoked to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Joel. It's, um, it was great to meet you at uh, the World Domination Summit, and I'm glad that we're finally having this conversation after a long, long wait. Yeah, we had a Skype conversation after the fact. You did one of the most amazing things after we met at World Domination Summit in, earlier in 2015. You sent me uh, just a one-minute vid- video, just gently recapping the conversation that we had for 10 minutes and be like, hey, I think you're a cool dude. We should chat. And then, of course, I'm thinking... Heck yes, we should chat. I loved, <laughs> I love doing that. And every once in a while, I will do the whole video thing, just a quick one. So that was amazing. You're the first person who's actually done that kind of thing after meeting somebody at an event. So thank you for that. Yeah, I was happy to do it. Yeah, I like to do the one minute video every now and again. I'll even um, I'll even write a little song for somebody. But um, I didn't I didn't have a chance to. I, I met so many people at World Domination Summit that I didn't. Uh, have time to write everybody's song. So I, I may owe you a song at some point. <laughs> okay. Well, you can save that one for later. All right. Uh, well, hey, let's start where we always start a conversation with something I call the seeds of awesomeness. To help people understand how you came to be the person you are today, can you tell us something unique about your environment as a youth or maybe even one to two experiences you had growing up that had a big impact? Yeah. Um, you know, it's always hard to pick what those formative experiences are exactly because there, there are so many of them. Um, I think for me, one of the most formative experiences I had growing up was probably spending time at church and the church choir. Um, I'm not, uh, I'm not super religious now, at least not a, a religious Christian kind of guy. Now I don't go to church a lot or anything, but growing up, I spent a lot of time, um, at the church. And one of the things we did every year, if we went on a, a choir tour, we'd go on this, um, get on a big old bus and drive around the drive around the country and visit different places. And it just really opened my eyes to the different kinds of people who are out there, the different kinds of um, experiences of life, experiences of suffering that there that existed in the world and really got me primed up for this mindset of service that I think has driven my business in such a powerful way today. So I think that's one one of those experiences where I really saw how powerful it was when a group of people get together and, and create something that really helps others. Um, so that would be one of them. Um, Can I ask you, what did you see? So you're on this choir tour. And sure. just, just for context, you grew up in Tennessee, close to Tennessee? Yeah, Brentwood, Tennessee. It's a suburb of Nashville. Okay. It's, like the, it's like a rich suburb of Nashville. So. so it's almost required. I mean, you're in Nashville, which is Music City, and yeah. then you are religious in some way, so you're in the choir. Yeah. So it makes perfect like, sense. It's a Methodist it's, choir. It's like this required. Really, yeah, it was, really, um, it was a really well-known choir um, in that part of Tennessee, we were really big church. We're the second largest Methodist church in the state of Tennessee. And our choir director was really well known. So we were known for our music in that choir. Okay. So what did you see on that choir tour or what kind of conversation did you have with a person or how did your experience differ from the experience of the other folks that you saw in terms of getting into that service oriented life? I mean, I think that Growing up in sort of a white middle class suburb, you know, I suffered from a lot of the um, a lot of benefits of being of that privilege. Right, I basically grew up in a place that was pretty homogenous. Grew up in a place where 
you know, everyone had kind of the same level of income. And so to go out and connect with people who connect with the elderly, connect with people with really severe physical handicaps, I think I started to realize how everyone is sort of fundamentally human, how, how we're all sort of fundamentally the same. And, and it seems kind of cliche to say, but I think that, you know, the first time you really see that growing up, it, it's really powerful. And, um, you know, people talk about it a lot and it gets kind of overused, like, oh, we're all the same, we're all one. But when, when you really have an experience of that growing up, like I did, um, of seeing that again and again, coming from this really homogenous environment and then seeing people who are really different than you, people in their 80s, people with really severe physical handicaps, um, seeing how that, that core of humanity runs through all of us was really powerful. And I think that it's that same seeing the core of humanity that runs through all of us that helps me work with really high-level people. Because um, even though we don't think of like elderly people and people with um, severe um, disabilities as being like high-level executives, I think that we tend to paint um, all those groups in sort of a corner into the way we think that they are. And so my ability to see past that painting into the nature of who people really are has been really helpful as I've, as I've led my professional life. Yeah. Well, you were going to mention something else. Yeah, sure, I will. Uh, the other was that I, um, before I moved to Nashville, I, I was a military brat. My dad was in the Air Force. So I, we lived all over the world growing up. I was, I was actually born in Germany. We lived in Athens, Greece, um, Birmingham, Alabama, Columbus, Mississippi, all these different cities um, overseas and in the South. And I think that that also gave me the ability to really um, listen to people and connect with people very quickly. When you, when you grow up in an Air Force base, you have to learn to make friends really fast. And so that ability to really pay attention and to um, notice where people were coming from and connect with them really easily was something that's it's really helped me. And I, it's also been one of those skills that I've been really grateful that I developed growing up, even though it was hard moving around. Um, because I now have that ability to really connect with most people I meet. I think that's just such a such a blessing to have that ability as an adult. Yeah, no kidding. I felt that with you just in 10 minutes of us sitting front row at WDS and getting a chance to chat. I was like, whoa, I would like to be this guy's friend. I don't know too much <laughs> about him, but he seems pretty nifty. Uh, so I get that. Okay, so you mentioned um, moving back to Nashville and I know you've you've had just a bazillion different jobs. Uh, I don't. We can't even get into all of them. Some are pretty nifty. But one thing that I would like to lead into because I think it gives people a good uh, sense of context in terms of where you are now, which we're about to get into. But you mention on your about page on your website this trip that you took to India. I know that travel, whether you were in the Air Force or whether you were on a choir tour or whether it was voluntary later on in life. Tell us a little bit about this trip to India and this headspace shift that you had that you were there. Well, the, the headspace shift really started even before I left, left Nashville. I, I knew I needed to really change the way I was living my life. I just didn't really have an exact idea of what, what that was going to be. And I, I guess I thought probably originally that it was just going to be this very normal, like move to a new city, meet new people kind of headspace shift. And it ended up being a much bigger head sh- headspace shift than that. Um, so anyway, I, I was, I took this big long trip across the country. I drove my, um, Subaru station wagon across the country from Nashville to Oregon. And, um, on my way, I ended up in Colorado and my, um, ex-girlfriend from college, um, was going to India and her boyfriend at the time had, had bailed on her. So she said, well, why don't you come to India with me? And so on about three weeks notice, I, I got a pass, I got my passport, got a visa, ended up going, I drove to LA and then flew from LA India for a month. And I think the, the thing about India is that India kind of just strips away all of these illusions that we have in the Western world that we're going to live forever and that we are in control of our lives and that order exists in the world because it's just such a raw, chaotic experience of humanity. And um, it's really difficult to live in that, live in that chaos. And um, I started getting into fights with them, um, with my traveling companion, with my ex-girlfriend. And um, I ended up having this really amazing conversation with a Canadian, which I think all Canadians are, are, are inherently enlightened. And uh, <laughs> so I had this really long conversation with this Canadian. And what I realized was that all of the things I had been seeking in my life had been very external and that I, I hadn't really developed any strong internal basis for happiness or satisfaction. And I really saw for the first time why that was a big problem. And why was it a big problem? The problem was I was always kind of chasing this this hamster wheel, right? It was always kind of running on this hamster wheel of getting to that next thing of trying, you know, I always had this idea that if I could get the right job, live in the right place, have the right cat, have the right girlfriend, have the right, you know, 
rock and roll t-shirt and tennis shoes that like then I would be happy. And um, this trip was just this great example of how that wasn't true. I had kind of wanted to get back together with this ex-girlfriend for a long time. And I thought, okay, here's my opportunity. I'm going to go to India. It's going to be great. Um, except I hadn't done the inner work I, I needed to be ready for a real relationship. I hadn't done any of the inner work to, to change anything about myself to really, you know, make our relationship viable again. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I got caught in the same patterns that I got caught in when I went out with her the first time, which is why, why we originally had broken up. And so, um, what I saw was that if I didn't address these underlying patterns, if I didn't address these habits of mind, um, if I didn't address this sort of personal problems, these flaws in my character that kept coming up again and again, that I was just going to keep repeating these same cycles in relationships, in finding jobs, in finding living situations that I could move anywhere in the world, be anywhere in the world. And these problems were just going to be, be coming with me. I, I couldn't possibly escape them and I had to really deal with them. Yeah. Yeah. Travel doesn't do you any good if you're trying to escape, if the thing you're trying to escape from is yourself, because we're always with us. I also envision that as you're having these kinds of realizations, you didn't ever think to yourself, hey, you know what? Maybe I'll go hang out in a Buddhist monastery for two and a half years when I get back yeah. to Oregon. That's, that's not the kind of thing that popped in your mind? No, it's interesting. So I had this realization, and then I, I kind of feel like sometimes we have to see things, and then we have to like go through the cycle one more time. So I, I had this realization, and then I went to uh, Portland, and I did the exact thing that I had done every other time. I got caught up in this game of, if I find the right job, if I get the right relationship, then I'll be happy. And um, it was only through going through that cycle one more time, and in a really painful way, I worked at a music venue, and I caught my boss stealing from, from the bands that were playing there. She was like changing the ticket count numbers that were paying the bands less, Ooh. and um, and so I got, I got, ended up confronting her and getting fired. And I just realized again, like, wow, this cycle has just happened again. I got caught up in it again. And um, so I realized then that I really needed to do something really fundamentally different. And right around that time when I was looking for that fundamentally different thing, um, I met a guy who was really into Zen meditation. And he, um, I ended up talking to him at a party. He invited me to come to his meditation group. And um, I started going, I started practicing meditation. I think it was in September of that year. October, I went on my first weekend retreat. November, I went on my first week-long retreat called the Sashin. And then by January, I was, I was living at the monastery. And it, um, it was just, I realized it was something I could do to really fundamentally address these problems that I had in my life. And um, I remember the moment I decided to go into the monastery. I was, I was sitting on this, um, I was sitting on the stairs with a friend of mine. And um, I like, I, you know, cursed really loudly and she was like, what's wrong? And I said, I, I realized I, I need to go to the monastery. And she mm-hmm. goes, well, isn't that, isn't that a good thing? Aren't you excited about that? And um, I paused for a minute and I said, um, yeah, but I realized that when I move to the monastery, I'm going to have to face myself and I don't really want to do that. Uh, yeah. Well, you did. So, yeah. I have. And, and I continue to, hopefully. <laughs> yes, it never ends. Uh, wow, we have firmly planted the seeds of awesomeness. Normally, we transition into some other types of stuff, but I love it, man. There are other stories. I'm, I'm just, I'm looking at your beautiful life, just blossoming right in front of me, and I'm thinking, huh, Toku, where to from here? I, I have so many questions, so, so many questions. All right, first of all, maybe we'll continue. This is good, actually. Maybe we'll continue with the overarching lens in which you see the world right now, because I've heard sure. you say that awareness alone is the most powerful catalyst for change. Things like our relationships, the way that we exercise, our meals, all of them, they work based on how and how much we pay attention to them. How did you come to that conclusion? Well, I think the monastery really showed that to me a lot, but probably the most powerful way I saw that was through um, my experiences of trying to overcome my own difficulties with anger. Um, Growing up, I had a really big problem with with anger. I used to lose my temper a lot. My friends used to say I had the best angry strut of anybody they knew. I could leave a room um, with passionate dissatisfaction better than anybody else. Yeah, you could just storm out like a champ, huh? Yeah, I would like stomp out. I had like this perfect like stomp and door slam routine that I did a lot. And um, I mean, I did a lot of things out of anger that I'm not proud of. You know, I, I broke plates. Um, I was, you know, mean to pets. Um, I, you know, got into yelling fights with, with, um, with my girlfriend. I mean, I was never physically abusive to anybody. I don't really even think you could even describe me as verbally abusive, but I definitely had these really kind of loud knockdown, drag out fights and relationships with, 
um, with my parents and with my partners. I would just lose my temper and just, just kind of, you know, blow my top. And when I got to the monastery, I realized it was really clear. You're in this peaceful environment. There's no place to hide this, this anger um, that you have. And I remember the first couple of times I lost my temper. It was really embarrassing, especially because no one, was, no one else was getting reactive to me. So I couldn't blame anybody else. And all the other situations where I'd gotten angry, I, I, part of me could justify to myself that it was their fault I'd gotten so angry. But here I'm with all these peaceful Zen monks. Clearly, it's, it's all about me. Um, so I realized through that experience that I had to deal with my anger. And the first thing that I did that the monastery taught me to do was just to acknowledge whenever I was angry, just to like, just to say kind of out loud, I'm feeling really angry right now. And just to sit with that anger, to not try to do anything with it. And it was that willingness to sit with my anger, to just be with it, that I started to really understand where my anger came from, what the trigger points were, and also how to really deal with it, how to really um, express anger or work with anger in a really meaningful way. So I think that that experience of watching myself change around this thing that had been such a big problem in my life, just by being aware of it, began to give me, give me an understanding of how powerful just being aware can be, how it can really change everything. And then I started to apply that tool to so many different aspects of my life, to my inability to communicate, to my relationship with my parents, to my desire to find meaningful work. And I saw again and again and again when I was willing to slow down and pay attention that the truth would just reveal itself to me. Hmm. The truth would just reveal itself to me. Well, I haven't had that kind of experience in my life. I've had to go searching for the truth. It's a very active pursuit as opposed to having it come upon me. Mm. Some, uh, that's just me. And I guess we have different experiences, right? So some people, they know me, they listen to the show, they get, they get me, but that, I'm not them. People are listening mm. to you and your stories are like, hey, I've never punched through a wall. I don't get that kind of angry. That's just not me. One thing that I found encouraging, actually, I'm going to link to in the show notes, you did an interview with Zach Sexton on The Productivity mm. Show, and you <laughs> mentioned something that just has really stuck in my head since I listened to it, that we all have the same base of wisdom to start from. Even though our experiences can be wildly different, like we all have this capacity for achieving wisdom. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Because I think I want to tease out this this thread a little well i'm going to do this thing that i probably should do an interview but I, i'm going to challenge you I, I don't i don't i guess i don't believe this story that you have that um that you aren't using awareness to find the truth i think it's interesting you made this distinction that i don't just sit there and it happens i have to actively go pursue it and i think that when people think about awareness they think it's this very passive experience of you know just like pausing and sitting still to arrive at the truth but the Pursuit of awareness can be an active pursuit as well as a as well as a passive pursuit. So I guess I would be curious to know, in your active pursuit of truth, does the activity for you help you create the awareness you need to see what's really going on? I don't know that I can answer that because I don't I don't think of myself as actively pursuing the truth. Mm. I think of myself as actively pursuing an intentional life. Mm. Um, one of contribution and of being of service to another. But that, that concept of truth, like what is true for me, I try not to get hung up on that too much because I have a very countercultural life. I have a very different life. And because I play by a different set of rules than a lot of other people, I want to allow other people to do that as well. So if I get into my truth too much, then I start to get judgy. I mean, mm. I, I still do that anyway, but then I start to get overly judgy about, well, their truth's not my truth, and therefore we can't be friends, or I can't talk to them, when mm. there's so many things that bind us. So mm. I kind of get hung up a little bit on this concept of truth, and, and mm. when it starts to become really front and center, that creates a barrier between me and everyone else. Mm. Uh, apparently you have a different perspective. Yeah, well, and I think it goes back to this question that you just asked a moment ago about, we all have this access to the same wisdom. And I guess I don't, I don't really experience this world as um, we have different truths. I think there is sort of this one truth. There's this one experience of truth, this one experience of wisdom. But then we all express it in our own ways. And I don't particularly care if my truth is consistent with other people's truths or if their expression of the way they live their life is different. You know, I obviously have my preferences, and um, I try not to let those preferences get in the way. I mean, I still have them. They're there. Um, they're part of who I am. Um, I can't deny those preferences, but um, I think that we all have this ability to access uh, a deep well of wisdom. I think we're just born with it. I think it's our it's our human birthright. 
I think that's why there's so many amazing, wise people in the world who all express that wisdom in a very different way, who all have different ways of talking about it, different language they use around it. And so um, for me, I'm not seeking a personal truth when I perceive truth, uh, when I seek truth. I'm seeking a truth that, that is unifying, that connects me and everyone that I meet. Okay. Maybe I'm getting hung up here on the number. You spoke about the one truth. Mm. Is there a single truth that goes through everything and everyone? Yeah, I what think so. <laughs> what is it? Yes. <laughs> tell, please tell, tell me. me. I want to know. I desperately want to know. Please. Um, what is the truth? I mean, there's a, there's a million different expressions of it. I'm, I'm very hesitant to, to get on your show and be like, well, I am the guru. and I'm going to tell you the one. No, no, no. We know, yeah. we know that that's not you. Like, sure. you're not the puff up my chest. Uh, look at me. I'm Toku. I'm awesome. Like, mm-hmm. you, are, you are not that kind of a guy. So if, with that context, say whatever you want to say. I mean, I think it, it may sound cliche to say, but I think the one truth is love. I think that um, my experience of growing up and becoming who I am has been very much an experience of coming to peace with the boundless love in my own heart. And I think that one of the most powerful things I've ever seen and also one of the most difficult things I've ever seen is how in reality, like we love everyone we meet, we love everyone around us and, and people do a lot of things to put barriers between themselves and that feeling of deep love because it's, it's hard. It's complicated. It, it brings up all of our stuff when we have to feel that love for other people. And so rather than deal with that stuff, rather than confront the difficult things and the flaws in our character that prevent us from expressing that love in the, in the most pure way, we, we set up all of these social constructs. We buy things. We develop societal strata. And it's all designed to kind of keep us away from that feeling of love that we feel for everyone because it's just hard to be in that place of love and love everyone and um, let our hearts be broken day in, day out by that love. Is it harder to love others than it is to love ourselves? Because I have an easy time loving others, but I often have a tough time loving myself. Mm. Well, I think that um, it's different for everybody. Some people are really good at loving themselves. Some people are better at loving others. I'm not sure you can make a blanket statement. I think that we want to draw a circle around the people that we love or the things that we love. And sometimes we forget to include ourselves in that circle. Mm. Sometimes we forget to include certain people in that circle. Um, but all the great mystics, all the great spiritual traditions all talk about this ability to love people who are difficult to love, including ourselves, you know, the ability to love our enemies as we love ourselves. And, you know, that's, that's a pretty high bar to set. <laughs> yeah, it is. You know, um, you know, looking at the attacks that have gone on in, in Paris and in Lebanon and Kenya, you know, how can we say we love, um, you know, people who are these sort of religious extremists or even religious extremists in the United States that do things like bomb Planned Parenthood and things like that. And yet that to me is all the more proof that we come from this inherent place of, of love. Because if I had to get the energy up, if I had to find some way to go out and love people who go kill their people, I couldn't do it. But if I come from this base of love, if I come from this, my, this one truth we're all coming from is that we all love each other, that love is a sort of currency, energetic currency of the universe. If that's the place we come from, then all I have to do is remove the barriers from that love. And that seems very possible. Much easier than having to go out and love people that, are, that kill other people. But that seems impossible if I don't come from a base of love. Yeah. So removing the barriers to love. Uh, now, it's making a lot more sense. I've heard you say that the, your primary form of meditation is loving-kindness meditation. Mm. And well, is that based on the tradition in terms of the Zen Buddhist school that you went to, or that's just what works for you personally? So actually, my, my primary type of meditation is, um, is breath meditation, but I do, I do that also with loving-kindness meditation. Oh, okay. Too. Sorry, I got that mixed up. No, it's okay. Um, I do both. Well, what is breath meditation? I think people are familiar with it. What is loving-kindness meditation? So loving-kindness meditation is just the practice of slowly and patiently putting the intention forward to live within compassion. So compassion both for yourself, compassion for other people, and compassion for the world. And there's a lot of different ways to do loving-kindness meditation um, in the monastery, we learned to do it with phrases. We would breathe in a phrase and then exhale, kind of giving that phrase space just to be. And um, so uh, the phrases are, 
may I be free from fear and anxiety. May I be at ease. And may I be happy. And so we'd start off with those phrases to ourselves, And then we'd alternate from um, may I be free to may someone else be free. So I, if I was doing loving kindness meditation for you, I'd breathe in and I'd go, and I'd breathe in and go, may Joel be happy. And then I would do, may Joel be free from fear and anxiety. May Joel be at ease. And then I might switch and go and do myself. Um, I would kind of go back and forth between doing it for myself and for somebody else. And the whole purpose of that is just to grow this energetic feeling of compassion in our hearts. The other way to do it is just to energetically bring forth the, the feeling of loving kindness towards other people. And there's lots of practices you can do to do that. You can breathe it. When you're talking to someone, you can imagine a, an energetic connection moving from your heart to the person's heart. And you know, I'm not a super woo-woo guy. I'm not sure if there's something active, actively energetically going on, but I think even just setting the intention into our own mind to have that energy when we talk to other people can, can really open us up to the possibility of connection with almost anyone. I like the way that you put it. So the more that we're inside our own heads and we pay attention to ourselves, it seems counterintuitive, at least to me. Like, if I'm thinking about me all the time, if I have this kind of meta thought always in the background about what's going on in my head, what kind of stories I'm telling myself, how can I possibly be present with the person I'm talking to? Like you in this example. But it sounds very clear that the more aware that I am of what I'm experiencing, what I'm feeling, what I'm projecting, the more that I have the capacity to connect, not just with other humans, but with my environment and with everything that's going on around me. Is that your experience? Yeah, I think that partly comes from this idea of the one truth and partially comes from this place that what's going on for you internally is going to affect your conversation with other people. I mean, it has to. It can't not. And Zen or meditation isn't about becoming a zombie with no emotions and no thoughts. You have an experience of, of your own mind. And so if you don't pay attention to it, it, it ends up affecting everything you do anyway. So either you pay attention to it and learn to mitigate that effect, learn to work with that effect, or you don't pay attention to it and it ends up running your whole life. So um, there's an amazing coaching book called The Prosperous Coach. And one of the 10 rules or 10 ideas it has is that around coaching is you always keep some of the energy on the inside. Um, and it's like mirror neurons, right? If I watch someone else getting into a fight, yelling at someone else, the, those mirror neurons in my head start to fire and I feel like I'm yelling. And so the same thing is true when, when we're having a conversation. If I'm picking up internally a feeling of anxiety or tension um, that, that isn't going on because of my story, it might be going on because the person I'm talking to is feeling anxious or tense. So, you know, we're kind of genetically wired to have these really um, empathetic experiences. And so paying attention to ourselves is, in a way, um, paying attention to somebody else. Okay. I'm on board. All right. I, I just kind of had one of those quick little woe moments. I knew that you'd bring them to me. I would imagine you're bringing them to other people. Whoever <laughs> you talk to is like, whoa, hold, hold on. Let me take a moment. Okay. Yep. Yep. Mind slightly blown, but still processing. Uh, actually, that, that reminds me. I did want to pick out one thing. You, in addition to being a wonderful speaker, you are a tremendous writer, if I do say so myself. And I do. And there was an article that you wrote recently on Medium.com, I think it is, mm -hmm. that gave me a very similar bold moment. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. Because part of it, and when I was reading it, it actually reminded me a little bit of Andy Pudicombe's thoughts on mm. how we treat our minds. Mm. Do, have you seen his TED Talk? I have not. Okay. It's awesome. Okay. Uh, and you don't have to watch it immediately, but I no, I'm going to go watch it. I mean, watch. It's, it's in total alignment with I, what I believe is your message. And any, so you wrote, and this is kind of similar to what Andy says in the TED Talk. So you wrote that our minds are like lifelong roommates we never pay attention to. And you spend all this time occupying your mind. You keep it busy. You fill it with facts. But you spend very little time actually paying attention to it. And mindfulness, you can get through meditation. I know you make the distinction. Those two aren't the same thing. But that meditation, it teaches you how to notice what, notice what it's doing and the games it's playing uh, with you to, to keep you safe, to keep you from avoiding fear, to keep you from trying to experience that sense of deep love. I just I just wanted to throw that out there real quick because that when I read that I was like wow there's something really powerful going on here. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. You know, we're the we spend more time with ourselves than almost anybody else, and yet we know ourselves probably less well than we know almost anybody else. 
So how amazing. do you go ahead? Oh, how, how do you know yourself? Like you, I know you ask as part of your coaching and just as part of your, this is who you are. You ask people to explore their minds and their lives. Mm. When you ask them to do that, what are you asking them to do? I mean, I think the first step of that is to really want to get to know yourself. You have to kind of decide that you're worth getting to know. I think that's the hardest thing for people to do is that um, people either want to fall in love with their public image or, or the, the sort of image they're presenting to the world, which isn't who they really are. Or they want to avoid knowing themselves entirely. Um, you know, it's in a way, it's it's easy to forgive other people, and it's and we don't see everyone else's flaws, right? We don't see what people do in the deep, deep, dark depths of the night, but we do see what we do. We do see our own character flaws. We're such have such an intimate experience of our own lives, and we know the things that we've done that aren't aligned with our values and our character. That it, it feels like, man, I, I don't want to get to know who I am because getting to know who I am, you know, I don't know if I like this person, who this person is, and I wish all these things could change about them. And, um, and so I think it's, I think the first step is to really want to get to know yourself. You have to have a compelling reason and you have to, that reason can't just be because you're going to get benefit out of it because that'll only take you so far. Um, one of the things we used to talk about the monastery is a lot is that people would come to the monastery in order to serve themselves. They, they were in suffering, they were in pain, they had some problem with their life that they wanted to get fixed. And so they would come to the monastery to, to do that. And that would take people so far, you know, you'd go through an experience where you would start to get over your anger and your difficulty and things in your life would start to get better. But to continue practice, to practice and be a lifelong practitioner of meditation, you have to move past the desire to help yourself and instead move into this desire to really change the world around you. And so that desire to change, I think, starts with a desire to help yourself. And then it has to grow past that to a desire to change the world. So that's what I'm asking people to do is to really reconnect with that desire to understand their own minds, to understand their own suffering, to get to know themselves so that not only can they help themselves, but that they can help the world. And um, it, the practice itself unfolds in a, a bunch of different ways. I can't really explain the process because it's really moment to moment. When I'm coaching someone, I'm not thinking about, okay, this is step A and this is step B. It's just responding whatever's coming up. But it's that willingness to step again and again into that relationship with yourself that's so powerful in a moment and over a lifetime. Yeah. Well, can I make a request of you? Of course. Can you stop saying so many consecutive insightful things? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm having trouble just being like, oh, oh wait, a, I, need, I need time. I need time between insightful comments. Can you take it easy on me? I'll, I'll do what I can. Um, Actually, it's not... Well, the funny thing is, it's not, it's not me. So I, I, don't, I don't take responsibility for this. This is why I believe that we all have access to this great wisdom. I've seen people who, who are shy and timid go, to, go through a week-long retreat. And, you know, you could have had a conversation with a week before, and you would believe, like, this person will never say anything insightful. Just literally say a string of statements that would blow you away with the depths of, depth of wisdom. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's not you know, these aren't my insights. These are insights. These are wisdom. And my practice is always, can I get out of the way? And can I stop thinking? And can I open my heart up enough that wisdom just flows forth? And I think anyone has the ability to do that. Yeah. Well, what I like about it is a lot of what you're saying is action oriented too. And I know you're definitely a man of action. As much time as you spend in your mind, you're also making cool things happen as well. The fortunate thing is this is a podcast episode. So people can click uh, rewind or (laughs) go back two minutes and listen to it again. I know I'm going to be doing that too. Speaking of that, so this is something that I have not actually heard you write or speak about, at least not that I've come across. I'd like to explore it a little bit with you. So sure. being a man of action, you like to do things, you like to physically exert yourself. I know you lift heavy objects, but you have said that exercise and mindfulness are perfect companions. Can you explain that a little bit, please? Sure. So people like to think of the mind and the body as separate things, but in reality, the mind and the body are, are the same thing. Um, it's interesting how often when I talk with other coaches about how to get people out of this sort of um, the patterns of thought or little traps that the mind set for them, one of the first things that we do with clients is we get them into the body. Um, we get them into that experience of the body, the physical sensation of emotions, things like that. And so one of the most powerful gateways into the more um, subtle aspects of the mind is through the body. And so for me, if you're not engaging in physical activity, if you aren't 
in the practice of getting into your body, of stepping into that physical relationship, then you aren't really laying the groundwork necessary to really create create mindfulness. It's the reason why people do yoga. I mean, yoga was originally, um, or the yoga asana, which is the physical yoga that most people refer to as yoga, is one branch of the school of yoga. And it was really the physical activity that people did to prepare for meditation. You know, these ancient traditions like yoga understood really well that you needed physical exercise, physical movement, to prepare the body, to prepare the mind, to be able to have that kind of silence. And, you know, if you don't do yoga, that's fine. You don't have to do yoga. Um, everyone does things different. I, I take, you know, right now I'm taking boxing classes. And mm. to me, it's fascinating to see what it's like to step into that powerful, aggressive part of the mind and see what wisdom and what awareness of what compassion is even there. I think that if you want to practice mindfulness, then finding a way to get into the physical body is such a powerful way. It's such a, it's a shortcut, a way to get into that place where your thoughts just start to drop away and you get to experience this sort of fundamental ground of being that all these wisdom traditions are talking about. Have you noticed a difference in your thinking either before, during, and after when you're boxing versus lifting heavy objects versus training for a triathlon? I know you've done things like 100-mile bike rides. Do you notice a difference between the activity and the thoughts that occur as a result of that or after it? Do I notice a difference? That's a good question. I'm not sure I would say I notice a difference. I would say that what it does is it, it, reveals, it reveals my mind to me in an entirely new way. There's something about, you know, most of us live our lives in these sort of comfortable nests. I mean, everyone does. It doesn't matter how successful you are. I mean, that's the thing that's so amazing to me is we look at the most high-level executives, the most um, experienced high performers, and they all make these, these little comfortable nests for themselves. And when we're, when we're inside of that nest, it's so hard to see what's going on. You know, the background is kind of the same always, and it's hard to contrast anything against it. But it's when we change that background in a really drastic way that we can, that things start to pop out. Um, it's one of the reasons why, if you ever think that you're, you've gotten really wise and compassionate, going and spending time with your family is a great practice. Um, because there's nothing like your parents or your relatives to trigger all of those old things in yourself that you thought you completely dealt with. So, for me, exercise is this amazing opportunity to reveal the things that are already there at the background of my mind, the things that are behind the everyday thoughts. Because when you're running or boxing, you this sort of higher-level thinking that you would normally do where you're thinking about what I'm going to have for dinner and what I need to work on, that all drops away because you're focusing on doing an activity. You're focusing on punching. You're focusing on riding your bike. And when that part of your mind starts to clear away, like kind of clouds clearing on a sunny day, what's underneath starts to become really clear. The things that you're afraid of, the things that you don't want to deal with, those things that you don't want to confront. And so physical activity allows those clouds to clear more easily. So I, I wouldn't say it necessarily changes my thought. I think it reveals another level of thinking that to me allows me to deal with some of the stuff that's going on in my life that I'm hiding even from myself. Okay. Well, you, you keep mentioning executives, like high-level executives, and I know that that is part of your deal now. You have this newish website, unexecutive.com, and we don't really have to get into the backstory of MindFitMove. I mean, your previous website, based on what we were just talking about, Mind Fit Move, Mind Fitness Through Movement, I mean, that totally makes sense, and I know sure. you still believe strongly in it. But I, I do want to give you the opportunity to talk about it, even though I'm not an executive. <laughs> I would imagine pretty much nobody listening to this is an executive, but there are, there's so much power that can... Well, actually, I'll, I'm just going gonna, gonna to take a stop, and I'm going to say, so what... Tell us a little bit about unexecutive. Like, why did you feel compelled to get into this specific type of work? Well, part of it was... This is where my um, intentions led me. I have a life vow that I made at the monastery to be of deep and fundamental service to others, to help others walk the path towards enlightenment while embodying the spirit for the energies of wisdom and compassion. And um, it's a vow. I, I used to write it every day. I don't write it every day. I do part of a weekly review process now. Um, but that vow has always led me towards the kind of work that I'm supposed to be doing, my calling. And so um, my business went through a lot of transitions. I like you said, I had this website, MindFitMove. I was doing um, mindfulness and personal training for a while. And then I did, did mindfulness coaching for a while. And I had a couple of experiences um, of coaching. I did this big 30-day challenge around mindfulness and happiness. 
and I started coaching some of the people who were um, who had signed up for that that program, and I realized that they weren't my people. And so I, I took a step back, kind of a step back into awareness, and said, "Well, what's really going on here?" And started just instead of trying to talk all the time, I really just started listening to my to my clients and to my business in a way I'd never had before. And what it really showed me was that the people that I was I had the most fun talking to, and the people who were getting the most benefit from working with me were people who were these sort of unconventional executives, people who ran businesses, several of them online, a couple physical locations, mostly online, kind of people who were really passionate about their work, who were really excited to get up every day, and who needed someone to push them, um, unlike anybody else in their life was willing to push them. And what I realized was that people who are very successful, and it doesn't have to be uh, executive of a big Fortune 500 company, it can be somebody who runs a successful podcast or a really amazing blog, anyone who's really successful in their work and really passionate about it, they reach a certain level where they stop having those people in their lives who can really push them, who can challenge them to be better. They really start to rely on themselves as their main engine for improvement. And, that, and that's problematic because we need someone outside ourselves to ask us questions, to give us perspective. And there just aren't spaces for those people in the world. There are a lot of spaces for beginners, people who want to learn about things, but there aren't a lot of spaces for experts, people who are really successful and really good at what they do. And so I wanted to create unexecutive.com to address the problems of the people who are those leaders, those people who are really passionate about their work, those people who have spent, put 10, 20 years into something and have gotten some level of success. I wanted to create something that would really help and serve them because I believe that we all deserve to have someone in our lives who loves us, who cares about us, who wakes up every day thinking, what can I do to serve this group of people, to serve this group of people that I'm a part of? And um, I want to do that for, for those types of people. Isn't that the core of it, though? I mean, you want to do this, you want to serve these individual people, but it's the ripple effect that it has. Think about how many people these executives serve, the millions of folks who pay attention to what they do and who care and will not necessarily blindly follow, but they are mentors. They're guides for so many other folks. So if you can help the person towards the top, if you will, I know that's a crude way of saying it, then how is that going to trickle down and benefit all these other people who are in direct contact, who are eagerly seeking the guidance, the wisdom from these other folks? Is that the more important thing? Is the ripple effect that it has? Or you're really only focused on these individual people and whatever else happens, happens? No, I mean, I actually have this um, theory that I share with people called my theory of trickle-down enlightenment, which is um, unlike trickle-down economics, which I don't think actually worked at all. Um, I think there is, a, there is a possibility to have trickle-down enlightenment, that if you can help leaders really become awake and compassionate, that it does have this powerful effect. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's friends with um, Nathan, Nathan Berry, who um, has this cool software called... Um, called ConvertKit. It's an email software. He got Pat Flynn, who's another well-known podcaster, to switch to ConvertKit. And so, um, as you probably know happens, you know, Pat, Pat Flynn switched and tons of his followers went on ConvertKit. And so I can't help but wonder, like, you know, if I could get Pat Flynn to meditate and do a whole podcast all about the joys <laughs> of meditation, all of these people who want to have passive income would start meditating. So, um, you know, I do, I do think that there's a, a social effect and powerful effect of helping these leaders. But, um, th- and there is a strategic side to it. I, I mean, I, you know, there's a part of this that says that's, that, that is the way I, I can help change the world. And I think we all want to change the world in a way. Um, but for me, I think what's even more important than that is that um, that's the work that I have felt called to do. So, you know, if I, if I had felt called to serve nurses, that's, that's who I would help. And I think that there's this idea that you need to be called to do something that has this massive impact on the world and leaves this legacy. But time destroys all legacy. It doesn't matter how long. And so the only thing that really matters is the people that we feel called to serve and the people that we can actually connect with and the work that we're called to do. And that's the most important thing that any of us can do. And so this is the work I'm called to do, and I accept it. I'm reluctant about it sometimes. I have problems with it sometimes. Um, but I feel like it's what I'm called to do and I'm going to keep following that intention. And I think if you're called to do something and you know, what you're called to do is pump gas and be a bodhisattva of gas pumping, that you can do that work in a way that's compassionate and wise. So I don't think we, I think we get caught up in the scope of work sometimes. And I think we need to focus more, at least my experience is we need to focus more on how do I want to show up? How do I want to serve people in a powerful way? I feel called to get Pat Flynn to interview you on the smart passive income podcast. All right. I know Pat somewhat well. 
And actually, after we're done talking, I'm going to recommend it to him. Oh, wow. Yeah. That'd be cool. He's, a, he's an awesome dude. I mean, he's had, I've, I've listened to Smart Passive Income podcast for five years now. Um, I've done some freelance project management work for Pat's. This is not me saying, Hey, look, I'm, I'm homies with Pat Flynn. I'm not, I'm really not. Um, (laughs) I, I love Pat. I love what he represents and I love the impact that he has. He's done episodes on his sleep habits and I'm sure he's got some kind of mindfulness practice. It would surprise me if he wasn't already into meditation in some way and you talking about those two things and being within, Oh, Oh my goodness. There, there could be some beauty that comes out of that. Okay. I'm going to file that one aside for now. I want to get back to you and on executive and coaching i know you're on a mission so there's a hundred enlightened leaders that's your goal and as far as how you do that the only reason i have some kind of sort of knowledge is you also talked about this with zach sexton on the productivity show these five (laughs) secrets of super fast mindfulness that you work on with your coaching clients i thought dude that's awesome Please talk about that with me, even though it's roughly repeat. Do you mind? Can we get into this a little bit? I, 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 I would love to do that. I, you're, you're catching me off guard here because I don't have my notes in front of me, so I'm not sure I can. I will help you. Yeah, that'd be amazing. <laughs> I'm a good note taker. <laughs> Number one, Toku, separate the energy from the action. Yeah. I will just say the thing, and then you will talk about the thing. How about sure. that? Sure. I love this. this is, um, it's, like a, it's like a teleprompter or something. You're much cooler than a teleprompter, though. I, oh, can you just hang is... out and prompt me my whole life? That'd be amazing. Hey, that's going to be a little bit tricky, especially if you're in Portland and I'm in Edina, but we'll yeah. make something work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so separating the, the energy from the action. And so um, what, that, what that's really all about is understanding sort of the sort of internal dynamic of what's going on for you as well as sort of the external dynamic. And um, I think that... We, we tend to think of life as just this flow from I have a feeling or thought and then I take some action. But we can learn to tweak both sides of that equation. You can take the same action with different energy and you can also um, use or change, have the same energy to take a different action. So for example, often we have a desire to help and um, you know, I think men especially are guilty of this. From our desire to help, we offer advice. But the truth is, is that you can have that same desire, that love of compassion, that desire to help. And instead of offering advice, you can offer an ear or you can offer um, a, a kind word or you can offer just reflection, just a willingness, just witness someone else's suffering. So that's what separating the energy and the action are all about is really learning how to manipulate both sides of that equation so you can live a life that is more wise and compassionate. Okay. I like where this is going. You okay. ready for your teleprompter again? Let's do it. Or your Skype a prompter? I don't Skype know. We'll have to figure we'll have to come up with a new phrase for it. Sure. Uh, second thing, have your attention turn on a dime and be fully present in any moment. Yeah. So that's that's a tricky one. Um, Sounds like it. Have your yeah. attention turn on a dime? What? Yeah. So but that's that's the practice of um our minds think that the only way that we're going to be safe is if we think about everything that could possibly go wrong and everything can go right and prepare potential responses to all of those things. But even as I just say that, you know, if you think of everything that could possibly go wrong in this podcast inter- interview, you could spend your entire life trying to mitigate all of those problems and trying to come up with responses for every weird thing that somebody could say. And you know, that's not really going to help you um, be present with anyone and, and actually respond in a way that's, that's really wise. And so um, having your attention turn on a dime is really letting go of the refuge of planning, letting go of the refuge of worrying, letting go of the refuge of anxiety, that somehow worrying about the future is going to actually make it better. And instead trusting that, um, that you're a wise person, that you're a compassionate person. And if you just trust and respond from a place of trust, that good things can come forward. And that's the sort of fundamental practice that allows you to turn your attention on the dime. Um, probably the, the biggest thing that I see people struggle with this, and I think it relates a lot to the way that you live your life and your philosophy, is that people often use technology or things as a way to like put their attentions on instead of people. And you might see that somebody will say something to somebody else, and they won't even the other person won't even look up. They'll be looking at their phone, and they'll respond. And so one of the simplest ways to practice turning on a dime is that when someone talks to you, when someone comes forward to connect with you, Put away whatever you're working on. Put down your phone, look up, and connect with them. <laughs> because there's a desire to hold on to the technology, to hold on to that object that's distracting you. And really, the person in front of you is this amazing repository of wisdom and the technology of mindfulness 
more than any phone or any computer could possibly be. Pause, answer the question, and then go back to what you're doing. That's a way to practice turning your attention on a dime. Mm-hmm. That leads perfectly into the third one. Mindfulness is about awareness, not speed. So yeah. you're saying turn on a dime. We want to be able to instantly shift our attention, but it's not about speed. So break this one down for me. Mindfulness is about awareness, not speed. Sure. I think one of the things that people think about mindfulness a lot is that it's supposed to be really slow. If I'm talking mindfully, I need to talk softly <laughs> like this. And as I'm saying wise things, I need to go slow and pause and go hmm, a lot. But that's just not true. You can have a very excited, fast moving conversation and spout tons of wisdom. You can be running and be mindful. You can be driving a car and be mindful. You can be rushing around to get, um, I was a preschool teacher after I left the monastery and I was always rushing around dealing with kids and arts and crafts projects. And I had to use just as much mindfulness in that situation as I did when I was moving slowly around my house, making rice or tea. Slowing down is a great way to, to really start to see the texture of what's going on in your mind. But it's not about going fast or slow. It's not about it's not about any one particular way of being in the world or any one particular set of preferences. It's about spreading this canvas of, of awareness across our mind, spreading this canvas of awareness so we can see what pain is appearing, what colors are appearing, what shapes and what patterns are appearing. And it doesn't matter if we're painting quickly or slowly, whether we're throwing paint at the canvas or we're you know, just putting little, little dots on the canvas. It doesn't matter how we're painting. The canvas is there to receive and so that we can see what's going on. Man, I am vivid. Yes, my canvas is just vivid right now. The things you're the canvas of awareness, texture of the mind, refuge of planning. I've never heard anyone put it in these terms before. It's just very vibrant things that are happening in my mind right now. All right, uh, we'll, we'll keep going. And the fourth one is meta-mindfulness versus micro-mindfulness. Yeah. So I think people, again, they think of, when they typically think of mindfulness, they think of micro-mindfulness. They think of, um, I'm going to pay attention to every little steam wave of tea coming off of this green tea, or I'm going to pay attention to the way this bug moves across a tree. And, that, and that's a really powerful way to practice mindfulness. But our goal with mindfulness isn't to notice every little thing. Um, there's an ability to focus, which is really powerful, but there's also an ability to have a really wide awareness. It's like the ability to, practicing the ability to love one person really powerfully, which is you know, maybe what you do in a romantic relationship or in a, um, a relationship with a, with a parent and a child, learning to love that person completely and fully. That's a very focused way of expressing compassion. And there's also this compassion that spreads out to include everyone, every being, everything in the world. And we often only think about this micro-mindfulness, this mindfulness of what's going on in this one moment. And so we don't think about looking at our whole lives and the patterns in our lives and the strategy in our lives as mindfulness. And often when I talk to executives or people who are very successful about mindfulness, they think, well, I, you know, I don't have time to be mindful. I can't slow down. I have too many things to pay attention to. And in reality, it's broadening the scope and seeing all of those things that you're paying attention to that can be one of the most powerful practices of mindfulness that people can do with their days and with their lives. So, and it's learning how to use both how to slow down, focus on the one thing right in front of you, and also how to step back and focus on the full picture of your life and the picture of everyone's life in society or everyone in your family and really using that wisdom and compassion and that discernment to, to really decide what's right in this moment. How can I best respond in this moment in the most wise and compassionate way? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we would come back to that broader canvas more frequently if we did number five which is experimenting and coming back to what you know works. And if you did number four, you'd know that it works. This act of returning, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I think that that's the other thing that people get caught up when it comes to mindfulness is they think that there's one right method. I think we all do this, right? You know, you look at, um, if you go look at a, a blogging forum, I'm a member of um, fizzle.co, which is this great website, um, Corbett Barr and Barrett Brooks and uh, Chase, Chase Reeves, they do a great podcast. They also have a great website. And I, I'm part of that community, and I go on the forums all the time, and people always want to know, you know, what's the right way to start my blog? What's the right way to do a podcast? What's the right way to grow a client base? And there, the truth is there is no right way. There are lots of right ways. And, you know, there are, there are wrong parts in those right ways, and there's right parts in the wrong ways. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on whenever we try to do anything. 
there is no right way to be mindful. There's no set of rules that are set down that says this is the right way. There's methods, there's techniques. Um, but the last sermon the Buddha gave to his followers was to be a lamp unto yourself, to really use your own internal light to guide you. And so I think that's why this process of experiment and challenging and testing things is so important because otherwise you, you start to get a task to whatever the methods and techniques were before. And um, I think loving, loving a growing child is a great way to see this because I saw this when I was a preschool teacher. You know, kids, as they, as they grew in the preschool age, they changed so much. But learning to love and the right way to love and to appreciate and interact with a two-year-old is different than the way to act compassionately towards a three-year-old. What's oh my goodness, right for, yes. Yeah, you know this, right? What's yeah. right for a two-year-old is yeah. different than what's right for a three-year-old. Wow. Okay, so to recap, separate the energy from the action. Have your attention turn on a dime. Mindfulness is about awareness, not speed. Meta-mindfulness versus micro-mindfulness and the act of returning, experimenting and coming back to you know what works. Oof, that was hot. That was hot. Okay, um, we need to wrap this up, unfortunately for me, although I, I know there is one right way to do something. The right way to have a good podcast episode is to invite you on the show. So there <laughs> might be a follow-up coming at some point. But for now, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like people to know? I guess the thing I would say is, you know, I think a lot of people out there are searching for the right for their calling, for their sort of purpose in the world. And uh, I mean, I searched for that more fervently than probably anybody I know. You know, I, you talked about all these jobs that I had. I had 28 different jobs before the time I was 28. Um, I, I was willing to try everything. I was willing to sacrifice my morals, my ethics, uh, my way of life. I was willing to move across the country. I was willing to do anything in this desperate search to find out what, what my purpose was. And there were a lot of dark nights where I thought, I'm never going to find it. There is no purpose for me to be here. You know, it's just kind of all meaningless. And when I did eventually find it, when I stopped looking outside of myself, when I really did the work that I needed to do to make myself the fertile ground for these seeds of awakening to be planted in, it changed everything. And it was totally worth it. So if you're somewhere on that path where you're stumbling through the dark and the only way you can tell the path is you're kind of feeling on the ground for where the grass is and where the dirt is. If that's where you are in your life, don't give up. Keep doing that work. Keep doing the action on the outside of yourself that leads to that truth that's calling to you. And keep doing the work on the inside to deal with your character, to deal with your emotional landscape that can help you be ready to walk that path when you find it. Because once you're on it, even though it's difficult, even though there are still difficult times, even though there's still suffering on that path, it is totally... 150,000 percent worth everything that comes before it because it will just make you wake up every day with a fire in your heart unlike anything you've felt before yeah well man i am so happy you've made yourself fertile ground um you are my whole model <laughs> yes see we didn't even get to talk about that i'm yeah. gonna link to it in the show notes you did a tedx about picking role models that matters and this concept of a whole model it's really cool and we're not going to get into it i just wanted to acknowledge the fact that it is also sweet and that i encourage people to explore that dude thank you so so very much for being a guest on the show one more thing People want more from you. I'm not asking the question. I'm, people want more from you. I'm not demanding it of them. Uh, where can they find you online to get more? Sure. So um, you can go to unexecutive.com and, uh, and sign up there. I send out a couple emails every week talking about the mindset and the skill set it takes to be successful and to take that success to the next level. And then, you know, I'm on, I'm on Facebook. If you search for Toku McCree, you can find me and just send me a, send me a personal message. We don't, you know, you want to send me an email, that's fine. But just find me on Facebook if you want. Send me a personal message. And I'm always happy to chat about whatever problems people have and, um, and, uh, and see what I can do to help. All right. So Toku, T-O-K-U McCree, M-C-C-R-E-E. You got it. That's it. Word up. Okay, well, we will stop there. But oh my goodness, my gratitude and my excitement is not going to stop anytime soon. Thanks again for coming on the show, Toku. All right, all right. You've now listened to over an hour of Smart and Simple Matters grooviness. And how do you feel? Relaxed? Ready for anything that comes your way? Eager like me to get more Toku at unexecutive.com? You can find links to all the stuff we spoke about, topic timestamps, takeaways, and more good stuff in the show notes. 
at valueofsimple.com slash SASM089. You will also see information in the show notes about how to support me, this show, and our community via Patreon at valueofsimple.com slash Patreon. And if you're not already a podcast subscriber, getting my email newsletter, or want to leave a review of this show, you'll find links to all that jazz as well at valueofsimple.com slash SASM089. As we head into 2016, I am fantastically fascinated about where you're going, where you'd like to be, what you'd like to change or stay the same about SASM. So tell me all about it on Twitter, at Joel Zaslowski, or via email at joel at valueofsimple.com. And yes, I do speak Canadian every once in a while. I love saying process and about it. I think I can because I'm Minnesotan. I'm practically Canadian. (laughs) If you got something out of this episode or just generally dig the show, share it, please. Nothing helps people slow down, be more mindful, and just straight up loosen up than a solid suggestion from a trusted source. Uh, well, I, I won't take that back, but meditation might be slightly better. Who, who knows? Sharing the show and this episode is definitely in the top 10 nifty things that you can do to help others out. Please consider it. It's now time for your partner in simplifying to sign off again. You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zaslowski, creator of all things value of simple. Simple.